0: You're listening to a breakout session from the Downtown Seattle Association's State of Downtown, recorded on February 8th, 2019, with sessions presented by Schwabe, Williamson, and Wyatt. This session, From a Freeway to Future Possibilities, the opportunity to lid Interstate 5. Moderated by Larry Kostich, attorney at Schwabe, Williamson, and Wyatt, featuring thoughts and ideas from Sam Acefa, director of the Office of Planning and Community Development for the City of Seattle, Liz Dunn, Principal of Dunn & Hobbs LLC, and Karen Thompson, Director of Planning for Delaware River Waterfront Corporation. For other breakout sessions and more from the DSA's State of Downtown 2019, visit downtownseattle.org SOD.
1: My name is Larry Costage. I'm a real estate transactional attorney with Schwabby Williamson, and Wyatt. Um, My partners and colleagues at Schwabi take very seriously and believe in this idea of civic engagement and promoting uh, public discourse. And it's for that reason that we're really proud to be a sponsor and a a partner with DSA on the um, breakout sessions that that you've been attending this afternoon. And thank you for sticking it out as well. the, uh, these breakout sessions, as you know, it gives us an opportunity to actually penetrate a little bit deeper into the topics and the issues that affect our, uh, our city and our community. Um, now, when I was first asked to um, moderate a panel on a LID, I kept thinking. Oh, LID, <laughs> local improvement district. That was so last week. Uh, you know what is that all about? And then I was obviously corrected by our good friends at DSA and said, "No, we're actually talking about putting a lid on I-5." So I'm a little bit of a, uh, given my my background as a civil engineer, which I did for a number of years before uh, doing the nightclub routine and obviously a lawyer. Uh, I used to be um, a, a bit of a, a junkie for. Uh, infrastructure, and so it's really a thrill here to have a great uh, group of panelists uh, joining us today. And first, uh, I'll go through and introduce um, is uh, uh, Liz Dunn. Uh, Liz is the owner of Dunn and Hobbs, which is a local uh, real estate development and um, property management f- uh, company. And in Liz's spare time, whenever she finds it, she actually has been uh, one of the leaders in the uh, LidI5.org. Uh, group that uh, was a citizen group that kind of was, uh, to a large measure, I think, an inspiration behind this. So, what was your inspiration then, Liz, if I can ask, on on this project?
2: Um, I I moved here from Toronto 30 years ago uh, when I was in my very early 20s, and I uh, I was telling Larry he kind of prepped me for this question. I, uh, I came out here because I was hired as an intern by Microsoft. They gave me a free rental car. I'd never owned a car. This was a big deal. So I drove, like, everywhere the first weekend that I was out here, um, including uh, from Redmond over to uh, downtown Seattle. And um, The only two cities I was really familiar with were Toronto, which has the Gardner Expressway running along its waterfront. It looks a lot like our viaduct. Um, And Vancouver, which had refused to build any freeways through its downtown, kind of notably, um, which I thought was a lovely city. And I got down here and saw the viaduct and was like, oh, really? Um, and then sort of made my way back up toward Capitol Hill and saw the I-5 freeway going through. And so I was, there were many things I fell in love with about Seattle, but those two were not on, uh, up there on the list. I was, I was kind of disappointed and bummed out. And, you know, you live here for 30 years and you get used to it. What I would say is happening now that we're experiencing with our volunteer organization is we've got, we've got new people coming to work here every day. And, you know, they're seeing it through fresh eyes. You know, and and for the first time, and they're having the same reaction I did 30 years ago, which is very excited to be in Seattle. Bummer about that freeway, and so that's actually created a lot of energy and um, volunteer enthusiasm for our effort. Um, and 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 I there's been I should acknowledge there have been at least four working groups over the past decades who have um, tried to kind of uh, spark an effort to lid the freeway, and Dick Hadreen who is responsible for this hotel that we're in today, um, has been a real estate uh, kind of a driving force in the community for decades and decades, and is largely responsible for Freeway Park, which is a lid over the freeway. Um, And uh, he told us recently in one of our advisory council meetings that he'd been trying to get the freeway lidded ever since the day it was built. There was not a big consensus about this freeway even when it was built. There was a ton of opposition Thousands of beautiful old apartment buildings were lost on the west slope of Capitol Hill. And, um, and it almost didn't happen. And then, and then subsequently, there were a number of freeway proposals that did not go through because people were not very happy. So sort of a, it was our last freeway. It was controversial. And ever since then, people have been trying to fix it. So I want to acknowledge the efforts of people. Our volunteer group's been really active for the last four years, but I was involved in a previous one. And a lot of people have kept the conversation alive all these years. Thanks, Liz.
1: And while we're on acknowledgments, I'd like to acknowledge uh, Councilmember Sally Bagshaw, yes, a City Council member, <laughs> Super Thank you, uh, for joining us today. Um, and that leads me into then the introduction to our next panelist, um, uh, Sam Asafa. Uh, Sam is the director of the Office for Planning and Community Development. Sam, given your experience, what – now, the Office of Planning and Community Development is um, uh, spearheading the feasibility investigation for the city. And given your experience and your background, help us out in understanding why you're the perfect person for that job.
0: (laughs) I had no choice. I was a big fan (laughs) of – Well, in terms of experience, I think most of my work over the last mm, 25 years about urban planning, city planning in major cities around the country – uh, in addition to ideas about development and good urban design, public spaces have always been a central focus in terms of how you balance between the built environment and the public space. Um, from San Francisco and Chicago, um, even in Boulder, Colorado, it's always been sort of a central theme. Uh, so it was—I mean, I'm personally kind of. Um, passionate about that in terms of how that integrates specifically for Seattle it is really it has to do with what the changes that we're going through and the need to so first the changes we're going through and the need to be creative about adding public space in the city Uh, the second is I think embedded in this conversation about freeways is it's been a movement now at least for 20 25 years focusing on how to address the scar that is left by freeways around the country, places like Vancouver, San Francisco, even in the 50s, 60s, 70s have been active opposing freeways. As some got built, uh, obviously I-5 is built here, so it's just the right time to start thinking about repairing that wound. Uh, From uh, sort of from urban planning policy perspective, and then just coming down why I'm uh, involved currently um, The LID committee in in their incredible work to sort of elevate this issue uh, as part of the convention center uh, public benefits Um, This was identified they identified uh, money to do a feasibility study and as part of that process council uh, approved that that my office would lead the feasibility study. So that's kind of how I'm, I'm engaged.
1: Thanks, Sam. And Karen, first of all, thank you for uh, joining us. Karen Thompson from um, uh, Philadelphia. Karen is the planning director for the uh, Delaware River uh, Waterfront Yes. Thank you. I I knew I was going to get that out. No one in
3: Philly gets it right, so (laughs) good job.
1: (laughs) Well, there's got to be a shorthand for that. So talk to us a little bit about your experiences um, and particularly leading that effort in Philadelphia.
3: Sure. So our um, effort to – I'll call it CAP because we call it a CAP there and not a LID. But um, our efforts came out of – if any of you are familiar with Philadelphia, we've got um, something called Penn's Landing, which was built in the Bicentennial and has been – the um, a lot of um, it is. Everyone tried to put every idea they've ever had into that thirty acres, um, and desperately wanted it to become something. And every effort um, ultimately failed. Um, and. It, There was a sort of resurgence of planning in the the 2000s, and we did a two-year master plan for the Central Delaware, um, which was six miles of the waterfront, not just Penn's Landing, but kind of how to flip the model on its head of, you know, giant private development comes in to save us, um, but do kind of incremental public improvements um, to then spur private development. And our cap was part of that. Um, It was, in the master plan, just a concept. We just said, hey, let's cap this tiny tiny, uh, it's 12 acres um, but let's cap this one section it'll reconnect the waterfront to the historic core of Philadelphia um, so let's start there um, and that was really the seed of the idea we had um, uh, you know, had all the stakeholders involved so everyone liked the concept and then we took it from there and, and did our feasibility study and kept bringing all the agencies on board um, brought the public on board um, and it's been uh, I was just saying it's Amazing how quickly it's happened because nothing happens quickly in Philadelphia. It feels like, um, and so forty years of nothing happening, and finally it's all like at lightning speed. Um, so it's been um, it's been fascinating to be a part of it.
1: Well, th- thanks for joining us, yeah. Karen. So uh, it, as I mentioned before, this is obviously putting a cap over I five. Uh, Liz, let's start with you. What exactly? Give us an overview. What what is the vision for the project?
2: Um, I think. You know, as a as a volunteer organization, we would love to see um, the impacts of the freeway addressed in a lot of places in the city, not just downtown. Um, and that that will happen, hopefully, in good time. Um, this we all, our efforts right now are pretty focused on the eight blocks of downtown that is going to be studied with the money that Sam was describing. That's coming out of the convention center. Um, mitigation funds, and that's appropriate because that's kind of in and around the convention center investment and the impacts it's going to have. And so that's Madison to Denny. Um, I I think, you know, as a volunteer organization that just would really like to see this new land created for whatever the public thinks it should be used for, we're pretty agnostic about exactly what we think it should look like. Um, But we do believe it needs to be a mix. So whereas 10 years ago, you you might imagine that it would have been proposed as just a huge park, I think as a city, we've grown, evolved to a place where we know we need more than that. We desperately need land for affordable housing. Um, we, de- we do need open space. We do have a pretty radical open space shortage in this city. Um, but you can imagine even those eight blocks from Madison to Denny could accommodate a huge um, mix of uses that would complement each other. So we're seeing it really as a new piece of city that will have that entire mix of uses that we might want and that we need. Um, I think we anticipate that at some point after this initial technical feasibility study, which is mostly focused on structural engineering and costs and economic feasibility, that there will be a, more of a, a master planning process for all that land that the city will lead and that um, the public will have a lot of input into in it. But it will be influenced in part by what comes out of the study in terms of what's structurally feasible on different blocks and different conditions, um, which I think was the case with sort of how things evolved in Philadelphia Yes, as well. Right,
3: exactly. Um, we had... Um You know, we're sort of capping, we're going across, we're also going down. We have this crazy geometry problem that we're dealing with. The city is 30 feet higher than the river, um, and it's not a consistent height from south to north, so we have this uh, geometric mess. And we had um, one of the key guiding principles of this, you know, as I said, where it's about reconnecting the city back to the waterfront and kind of making up for this I 95 scar that we've got across the waterfront. Um, And our goal was. at Front and Chestnut, which is kind of the northwest corner of this future cap, um, you should feel like you're at the river. Right now, if you go there, if you visit Philadelphia and you're coming from Independence Hall, you get there, you have no idea there's a river on the other side because of just the way it was constructed in the 70s. It's thick. It arches up. and it just feels like you've end, you've reached the end of the city, um, and so our one of the main goals was that now when you get there, you will be able to see the river. And so the structure and the engineering, the feasibility was all with that goal in mind. Um, so it's been now it's in um, it's in final design. Um, Still tweaking that structure and getting it right because you make a change in one place, it raises it up over here, and it's just been adjusting. But yeah, that was key to deciding um, uh, to informing the whole project. And then that informs the uses that are going to go on it and where they go, and uh, yeah.
1: Uh, Sam, uh, Liz referenced uh, the the feasibility um, uh, study, though uh, I think it was $1.5 million that came from the convention center as part of the mitigation project. Um, My understanding, or why don't you describe what the the process, where we are right now, and what the purpose served by the uh, feasibility study is? Uh,
0: Sure. So we put out an RFP uh, last December, I believe, mid-December. Actually, today and by Monday, we'll finalize shortlisting, Uh, consultants. We received uh, 12 fantastic uh, local, national, and international submissions. Uh, I was very excited to review some of them. Uh, So we'll have a short list. Uh, There's an interview scheduled on the 15th from that short list. And then soon after that, uh, we will have a consultant on board. And we have also put together, in addition to the Uh, led steering committee that has been uh, really the, uh, uh, has done the foundational work, we've put together a feasibility study committee that represents multiple uh, constituents in the city as uh, kind of a sounding board. Uh, They'll be having, I think, their first meeting March 28th. Don't quote me on that. It's sometime in March. And they will then... That would be sort of the first kind of kickoff of of this process. The actual, um, as Liz said, what we want to look at is the technical feasibility and the management uh, options and the cost issues. Uh, Karen talked about the complexity of that one 12-acre site. Multiply that by 10, uh, (laughs) relevant to the kind of site issues that we're dealing with. We have an I-5 that is... uh, uh, challenged in terms of the age of the infrastructure, the walls. Uh, there's seismic issues um, near Pike, near Pine. You have a tunnel going through it with the light rail. So there's significantly complex issues. And then on top of that, um, again, unlike Karen's there will be options. I think Vision that was expressed a combination of built structures and and park. So all of those add complexities. So it's really important that we get it and understand from, uh, you know, both from a use perspective, but primarily from a policy perspective. We need to understand and look at the options. What is possible and what would that cost the public sector? I have a boss who's constantly talking about as we grow in the downtown, how do we get public spaces? But she's also very cognizant uh, that we don't, You know go on a route that we can't even pay for right, so it is this feasibility study is really important in terms of answering Really critical questions about the feasibility and the options from a structural uh, technical um, economic uh, management perspective, so the hope is to get those fundamental questions answered at the end of that process and my hope is we'll surpass Karen. By the time this is done, it will go right to uh Well, with that in mind, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. So well, there's a, yeah, go ahead. We'll, no,
1: you're,
3: we'll you're, see you're, who gets it first.
1: <laughs> well, I was just going to ask, with that in mind, uh, you know, Karen, you talk about 40 years is what it took you. Um, you know, by my estimate, we've got, you know, decades to go before we actually even approach that. So, so why now? I mean, what's the imperative to, to be looking at that now? Well, so... You know, we have a great
0: example of the waterfront and the viaduct. Now, I remember 20 years ago coming here, giving some talk from San Francisco, uh, talking about the Embarcadero, the transformation of the Embarcadero. And the talk was about the the Alaska Freeway. So debates were taking place at that time. And it takes a long time before ideas and and concepts like this um, take hold, and timing is really important. Why now? Uh, there's kind of a lot of alignment in terms of some, uh, the fact that something needs to be done and there's a lot of uh, grassroots work that actually led to where we are now uh, and you know, the timing uh, these things have their own time and it just feels like the right time at least to do uh, uh, seriously look at what is possible. So, uh, And then um, we have uh, significant challenges in the city as it relates to the quality of place that we want Seattle to be 10, 15, 20 years from now. Uh, You saw at lunchtime uh, John Schultz talking about the growth of the downtown. Uh, It has surpassed significantly and our own uh, projection just from two years ago about uh, the comprehensive plan. Looked at a 20 year projection and in one year we have reached about 22% of that projection in terms of the number of population and jobs in the city, so that is anyway it may slow down, but that's going to continue. Uh, we know we have shortage of public spaces in the city. Uh, we're not going to create new land and buy a new uh, expensive downtown piece of land. So it, it, it is uh, ripe or really seriously thinking about the options for that.
1: And then you also mentioned uh, I-5 uh, has some seismic challenges. Uh, uh, how is this being coordinated, then, with the um, uh, Department of Transportation, the State S- Department?
0: So it, it is critical that we are aligned in terms of uh, how we think about that with WashDOT. Uh, I mean, Karen talked about this morning uh, how there was great alignment between the city and the Transportation Department here. Um, As part, We're engaging them as part of this process. They will be part of the selection, uh, from the consultant selection to uh, interviews. And then we have a technical team that I didn't mention earlier that we put together. That's a multi-agency technical team that would advise the the consultant as well as the city. Um, And so WSDOT is a significant player in that. So it's important to have them at the table at an early stage and then figure out uh, through the process what kind of mutually beneficial outcomes can come out of it?
1: As you've you've uh, talked uh, that you've worked on this for quite some time, looked at a um, number of other examples, and you know, I know Karen talks about um, the, uh, the project on the Delaware River. What other models have you looked at um, that have some similarities to the, the constraints and the issues that we're facing with I 5?
2: Um, well, our little volunteer team—I mean, I think amongst us has visited almost every um, built uh, lid project or in, and sites that are um, um, going to be built in the near future. And so, I personally um, realized this morning that I had been in a presentation four years ago <laughs> about the about Karen's project when I was in Philadelphia and earlier this year or I, last year visited. Dallas, which has a very successful Lid Park that's about five years old now, and met with the folks in Kansas City. Those of you who remember Bill Dietrich, because he used to be involved in the DSA here, is now leading the charge to build a significant Lid in Kansas City. Um, I visited Pittsburgh. Scott and others on our team have visited other places. but um, And this is kind of exciting. An anonymous donor is funding us to create a case study book this year of all the Lid projects that are... Um, either recently built or in the works that are somehow relevant to what we're um, doing here, and Karen's project is going to be in that, and we think that's going to be a great tool, um, particularly in the realm of political advocacy, because it's always helpful and comforting for a city and a state that's, you know, we're sort of asking them to think about this in a very ambitious way, to say, okay, other cities are doing this too, and state highway agencies can sometimes be uh, challenging to work with, and um, I'm not trying to throw a washout under the bus here by any means, but I think that it, going back to life is timing, as Sam alluded to, not only does the freeway need a significant rebuild, which we didn't actually understand when we started getting active again four years ago, um, but also I think um, state highway agencies around the country are thinking differently about how they rebuild freeways because they're being asked everywhere to look at, Litting the, uh, the the very urban parts um, and so I could go on and on about examples from other cities, but like Atlanta's looking at fourteen miles of of uh, a network of littered freeways through so so all of which is to say. I can't remember the question anymore. What's <laughs> what was, you're, you're doing personal? Like, oh, just examples, just examples from around the country are helpful. One because they inspire us, they help us with political advocacy, and they're providing fantastic data. Like, um, and so for the the study that the city's leading is going to be able to draw on some significant cost data. I will say the one thing that we are. Hoping to push the envelope, on which Sam alluded to, is putting structures, in which I alluded to too early, is putting structures on um, on some of this lid, which is uh, there's a project in Washington, DC. that is just wrapping up called Capitol Crossing, which they put um, four big office buildings on a on a lid structure going over an interstate, reconnected the grid in that part of the city that was like completely a big open ditch. So we're going to get data from them, which is going to be fantastic. And I would say there are more in the works that want to include buildings, but it does imply a bigger structural challenge. Probably more cost to build the lid structure, and that's one of the things that Sam's uh, uh, study, well, that the, 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 the team that gets selected will have to take a hard look at. That's one of their tasks.
1: So you're, yeah, with, I guess just tugging on that thread, because uh, the feasibility study said it's going to look at the structural issues um, with regard to putting a lid or a cover over I-5. Um, in terms of loads, um, in terms of what's going to go on top of it, uh, what's the range that you've been uh, uh, b- the charge with looking at?
0: So we're going to have that conversation as part of the, the the work that's moving forward. But what we know is we need to look at a range. Uh, if you when you talk about building on it, a park is one thing. You can have I don't know four foot thickness would be maybe enough, or six foot for. Uh, uh, You know planting in trees, but if you're going to put a building on it It's a different story if you have a six-story building or a 10-story building or a 20-story building So we want to be able to take advantage of this process to get the range and just have information This is not about selecting a preferred alternative or preferred plan. It's let's understand the fundamentals of what the uh, uh, What the options are from a structural perspective? And then let's find out the cost, as well. Uh, so then, then uh, decision-makers are well-informed when they, uh, you know, it comes before them, or um, you know whatever entity is going to manage it, or uh, create revenue generation. Any number of those options, needs, sh- they should be looked at. It doesn't mean that they will be built, or at, at least at this stage. But it's really critical, uh, I think, for uh, at least the public uh, perspective, that. We have sound uh, foundational study that then gives decision makers choices.
1: Karen, how does that parallel um, the the process that you and uh, your your group went through in looking at um, what the the range of uses were going to be?
3: So for us, um, there w- there's already a constraint in that PennDOT. Um, within structures within their right of way did not allow a lot of commercial uses or private development. So we had never really intended um, our structure to hold up more than um, what we're planning for, which is a cafe and a building supporting an ice skating rink. Um, but it's more of a pavilion. It's it's fairly small, um, and the the structure as designed right now can hold that while we're keeping our, the views that we want to maintain. Um, so we are kind of knew that you know we never had an expectation that we were going to be potentially Developing office towers or or mixed-use residential on this, but the other reason for that is that you know I mentioned this is 12 acres of an essentially 30 acre site and on the northern south side of this are two uh, Development sites for us so this was going to be anchored and surrounded by development and be kind of a park within that central um, You know that larger area so we had we just hadn't you know thought that that would be a use for our park So that was I think a little bit different than this where it sounds like it could be a possibility. Um,
1: well, with that in mind, I mean, I, you see the uh, the two examples that um, are behind us. Um, Liz, let me ask you: what what is this, or what could it be? What do you see is the range? You alluded to buildings. Most of us think, uh, with those examples, or at least the uh,
2: the one from uh, uh, Dallas, uh, would be parkland. I mean, what? These are great because these are kind of the endpoints along the spectrum of what you could imagine <clears throat> for Seattle. And you know, I. I expect we'll end up with something in between, but um, the the Dallas example, which is quite a bit like the project that Karen's working on in Philadelphia, is using a lightweight structure, um, uh, and because you know they had clearance issues and they had to keep it really skinny, and they've got. Uh, uh, I've visited it. There's a performance pavilion and a significant restaurant and some other amenities, and it does generate some revenue. It actually generates enough revenue that they thought last year after I met with them, they thought they were going to break even that year on O&M. It's run by a, a private foundation not dissimilar to the structure that you're looking at. And and just a little bit of revenue-generating real estate is is... We're not going to service the capital, to be totally clear. That was a combination of state, city, and philanthropic money. But it's nice to be able to say, okay, we're going to cover our o budget for budget for this park on an ongoing basis. The D.C. example, I don't know how well you can see, are those four big office buildings that I was talking about. That was completely different. Um, they were handed the site. They were allowed to um, do construction sort of over the freeway, I don't really know what the traffic management situation looked like there, but they—they were—they it was economically feasible for them, if they could put those office buildings on it, to lid the freeway. So in other words, if you go full density, the numbers work. And I think what we're going to find in Seattle is that we're going to hit a moment once we have the technical information that we need, as Sam said, it's all about having the information you need to make decisions, where we're going to be able to turn the density dial up and down, Revenue generating real estate is going to underwrite the cost and Where we want revenue generating real estate and where we want open space There's gonna to have to be some public dollars that go into it and we're just gonna to have to turn the dial up and up Up and down till we get to what seems like a, a good community consensus on that But that's kind of the answer to a question We get a lot to which is probably gonna be your next question Which is how do you pay for it? And we think there's a lot of creative ways to do it, but certainly having some revenue generating real estate helps a lot and I would argue still is is somewhat badly needed as well Be, uh,
1: before we get to that because that is obviously one of our critical issues I, one of the one of the things just you know bringing it back to part of your charge Sam um, what are what are the range of uses that you could anticipate and especially given your experience as a planner that you could anticipate for a lid on this portion of, of i 5
0: if if you can build a structure on it the whatever use if we're in the downtown, a mixed use from residential to commercial are possible within the current zoning that 's i think uh, to me that 's not the first thing that comes it, it's it, any number of users can go into it first we need to understand you know what is the scale of buildings that can be built on it whether and then the question would come whether any building should be built on it or whether it is economically feasible when it's cheaper to build on terra firma, you know? And so all those questions will come up. But from sort of a a land use or urban design perspective, it is critical that a park has a complementary uh, framing, not only just formally, but the types of uses that then activate uh, uh, that park. What's really successful about Clyde Warren Park, for example, in Dallas, is that park generated significant interest all around it that created a significant amount of uh, mixed-use development. Millennium Park, on the other hand, uh, in Chicago, already had a very vibrant downtown. But it went through the roof in terms of the number of uh, commercial, retail, residential uh, uh, activities that. Transformed that area, not on top of the lid, but on the periphery. So the idea of a mix of uses, ice in the park, uh, uh, revenue generation, uh, again potentially opportunities for affordable housing and any kind of public benefit. All of those should be in the mix. Uh, this is not again to choose, you know, a preferred alternative, but take advantage of this process to. Answer a whole slew, slew of questions that will come up uh, when we get down to the next phase. Then, obviously, there is you know discussions about the current zoning versus future. I think first we need to get we need to get the fundamentals right. Yeah. You know, can you build it? And if you do, then we'll have a discussion about what the choices are. But it's important to get to uh, again. It's going to be a public lands, at least the cap. It would be probably a lease uh, from the state. So uh, all of those play into the conversation about what could go from a land use perspective and a scale perspective.
1: So, Liz, you, you uh, teed that up nicely with regard to, you know, how do we pay for it? I mean, and that's obviously one of the key issues. Uh, most of us have, uh, you know, we, we're experiencing now the, the uh, what may be the final stage of uh, the local improvement district for the waterfront. Um, most of us to Sam's point where we recognize that there uh, perhaps, uh, if, uh, you know, particularly Parkland, or if there's some public space that is being created, does that create some benefits to the adjoining properties? But you, you've looked at a variety of different models and different ways to be able to fund it. When, could you talk a little bit about that, please?
2: Um, we have, and, and we also got uh, the... Um, Master students at the Runstead School this fall at UW to take a run at it with us because we thought it would be an interesting exercise for for them and Alavine who teaches that studio is on our advisory council and so we got we got them to help us think about it and it was really fun and now no, mind you it was just a student exercise and so we shouldn't hang too much on it but they did really high quality work they they took the point of view and I want to acknowledge what Sam's saying like this all this all presumes that it's, it's cost-effective to be able to build a, th- a thick enough, a structurally, a lid that can support buildings that Washdot doesn't have, or the federal government doesn't have, huge objections to that. Um, and we don't know that yet. But um, let's just assume for a moment that we, we get over the sort of threshold of, yes, we can put buildings on on this, and, um, and that helps pay, pay for it. Um, the students looked at it, and very much in the way that I was describing a minute ago, where they kind of they did three scenarios that kind of turned the dial up and down, and they said, okay, depending on how much revenue-generating real estate there is, that can go to service a ground lease with the state who, or, or or the city whoever ends up owning the land, because I think we all want it to stay in the public trust. Um, that part of it can service ground lease or 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 bonds, or whatever was needed to finance the initial construction of the lease. And then there's a portion that still is going to require a public piece. And um, I thought your example in Philadelphia was fascinating because you didn't do an LID. You didn't directly Mm -hmm. try to tie what you knew were going to be uh, really good increases in surrounding property tax revenues. You were able to study them and demonstrate them, but you didn't have to link them. The city was convinced... That they could come up with the money, and that they were going to get a nice financial return right. later, but they didn't. They didn't link them with a mechanism, and so um, and so that was interesting. I mean, here with the waterfront, we are linking it with an LID mechanism. the the portion The portion of it that's going to be paid for with those mm-hmm. funds, and I know it's uh, you know that was a, a little bit controversial, but we don't have TIF in this state, so it's not crazy that that the lid was the best vehicle for, for linking uh, property tax and property ownership and increase in value with um, with the project, with the waterfront project. So we, there may be other ways we can skin that cat when the time comes. It, it, it doesn't, but um, I think there's public finance mechanisms that can at least rely in an abstract way on an increase in values immediately around the freeway. And then there are real estate mechanisms that can help pay for um, some of it directly. And then I think we shouldn't eliminate the idea that the state and the federal government um, have money for infrastructure projects. And our goal is to hold hands with and, um And, you know, 10 years ago, they might not have had a lot of interest in this project, and they're still being pretty neutral about it, but they're being helpful. So I would say I just think times are changing. We've had only positive signals from them, and our goal is to hold hands with them. If they need to go ask for federal money, we think we're actually a really compelling partner because those are the kinds of projects that we think are going to get funded in future, the ones that have a big community benefit that are not just a highway rebuild.
0: Yeah, and that's why it's a fundamental part of the studies to really understand what kind of financing mechanisms are there out there that is applicable, you know, to the context that we have here. So that would be, in addition to the structure, I think one of the most important components would be options that would inform decision makers in terms of financing.
1: What options did uh, you find,
3: Karen? So, we when we did our feasibility study, um, ours was a third of the cost of yours. We had half a million dollars to spend, so we couldn't be quite as comprehensive. Um, so, our goal was to prove it was engineering, you know, possible from an engineering perspective. Um, and then, uh, to your point, what we did was to demonstrate the value that would be created by building this park. Um, and so, we had a series. Um, our economic advisors, HRNA, modeled. Um, Um, Development scenarios for the adjoining development parcels um, from a a range of scales from you know bare minimum that they could build to completely maxing out the zoning. Um, They picked kind of on the lower end of that as the one to model um, and then demonstrated the, um, the, the the tax revenue to the city, the jobs created, the specifically, and this was very important for Philadelphia at the time, was to demonstrate the f- revenue that would go back to the school district specifically. That was something that the local, um, you know, council members and the public wanted to know that every, as much as possible would be going back to the school district. So that's how we, you know— we, we were agnostic in a sense as to how we, it would actually get funded. We do have TIF in Pennsylvania, but it's incredibly difficult to they're very few, and they're very hard to do. Um, So we just wanted to demonstrate that it was going to create that value and then kind of go from there and see how different funders, what they saw as mechanisms for funding it. Um, So for us, we we took this, we took it around to the agencies. PennDOT was involved the whole way, and then we did a very formal, um, you know, with the head of PennDOT, like, here's what we want to do every council person, the mayor, every state legislator, our our federal senators, everyone just said, here's here's what we think this could do conservatively. And um, PennDOT saw that and thought, you know, um, that's great. And essentially, this could be mitigation for I-95, both perhaps making up for past mistakes in I-95, but also they're going to rebuild it. It's Right now, it's still going to be there, um, separating the city from the river. So sort of future connections, that first step, and maybe starting to stitch this back together. Um, And the city saw the the revenue that could be generated and and decided to put up a bond. Um, And then the... The rest of the piece. It was about 120 million from PennDOT that they put in, 90 million from the city of Philadelphia, and the remainder is um, private philanthropic organizations who wanted to see that the state and the city were committed and were in for it. Um, and then they fell into place. We've got a few, a little more to go, um, but uh, yeah, that's that's how we did it. So we didn't come with any particular. This is how it will be funded. It was just this is what we think it could do and the impact it could have on the city and the region, and let's figure out how to fund it.
1: And, and there was an inspiration then that, uh, that came out of the, the initial process. I mean, if you look at where we are right now, mm-hmm. what actually gave this a, a little bit of the kickstart to, to move it forward?
3: For, sorry, for us? Yeah, or, yeah I'm sorry. Um, yes. In terms of getting to our feasibility study, um, it was seeing that you know, as I said, we had this master plan that had the concept and realizing that the concept is there and it's on a it's on a little aerial rendering and it looks pretty, um, but it was time to figure this out and it just seemed like we had developed great relationships with PennDOT. Um, it was time thinking that you know, Pens Landing had taken forty years hopefully it wasn't going to take another 40 years, but it was time to start doing that pre-work. But it happened fairly quickly. I was saying earlier, we're kind of flabbergasted now that we're in final design for this cap with a construction starting, hopefully, in 2021. Um, And that, you know, 2010 was the master plan when it started. That's 11 years to the start of construction, and it was just the right time for everything. I think Philadelphia was seeing a renaissance. People were starting to feel hopeful again, and you know, I think we just proved we had an idea. It was fairly simple, 225 million dollars worth of simple, but it was doable and it was going to work and it was going to have the impact. You know, conservatively have the impact, and maybe it could have an even bigger impact. And I think that really just everyone fell into place.
1: So, Sam, uh, you know, uh, the the Seattle process has uh, been talked about, um, and given where we are now, we're at the early stage. We haven't uh, we haven't even uh, uh, move forward with the feasibility, or we're just starting to move forward with a, a feasibility study. What do you see the process beyond the feasibility study, and uh, you know what's the horizon for um, taking a deeper dive into um, this potential project?
0: Well, it's kind of hard to project, but hopefully, I think the hope is there is enough there in the feasibility study that then creates a, a very serious conversation Community conversation about what this means and I think this city just like a few others uh, has done very very bold uh, Has made very bold decisions for you know throughout the years and we have a recent example of the waterfront. It's not easy It's uh, There will be very serious conversations that will take place the most I think for me from where I sit the most fundamental question is what kind of value, community value, is added and and what what is that worth? And that conversation coupled with uh, sound analysis and study, then I, um, and the way we're uh, framing it as part of the study is then there's enough there, there, then serious conversations could start taking place soon after that. And the length of time after that really depends on, you know, a year from now or five years from now, in terms of where where we are as a as a community and as a uh, place, in terms of what we value. Uh, I think the beginning part of the question, which is you know why now, then starts coming up again because timing is critical for these kinds of things. So the momentum or the uh, value that could come out of this then could inform, uh, is it going to take five years, 10 years, 15 years, who knows? It's really hard to tell. Uh, but again, it's really critical the next um, you know, 9, 12 months that we have a, a well-supported and understood uh Outcome out of the feasibility study and I think I was asking Karen uh, this morning, you know What did you put together? How did you how fun foundational was that study then to? Make it an easy transition to then go to the consultants and and I think that's part of why it went really fast from that model But we're not Philadelphia uh, every city has its own culture in any number of ways it's not just the process but you know, one of the study uh, focus of the study will be what are all the regulatory issues that hurdles that we have to go through from the federal government, the state, the city. Um, so all of those would inform uh, you know the timeline.
1: Um, Liz, I want to jump back to you, and we talk about cost, and the t- cost that we've been focusing on are largely just the, the construction cost, if, the, if this would be built and all the, the parameters that go into that. But we all know that there's um, there's an operation and maintenance component to that, and it could, again, given the range that you're looking with, anything from uh, all private to Effectively, all public and open space. How would you see um, potential cash revenue or um, revenue being generated on, you know, some of the the more open space options that could ensure that there is sufficient um, uh, funding for ongoing operation and maintenance?
2: That's a, that's a great question. I think Seattle doesn't have a super strong history of having revenue generating um, uh, establishments in its and its parks. Many other cities have been doing that for a long time. I think we're starting to warm up to the idea. Um, I think, you know, and this is maybe going to sound like too much of a plug for the DSA, but I think that having the DSA op- operate Westlake Park and Occidental Park have been good examples of, of how you can make that work and have a little bit of commerce in those parks, in a way that doesn't make it seem any less of a of a a, a public domain where everyone is welcome. Um, I know there's a lot of good thinking going into how the waterfront <coughs> is going to be programmed and what um, commercial establishments might take root there that would generate revenue back for O&M there. So, I would just I would just say that I think there's a lot of potential as Seattle warms up to the idea that aside from potentially private Revenue-generating real estate, which might be everything from you know uh, low-income housing to um, market-rate housing, or even commercial. That that the open space itself could have um, kiosks and facilities and um, music venues um, that would uh, generate, and where the where the city or the PDA or whoever is actually running this this thing um, captures that revenue and uses it to help underwrite the operation of the park. And the more programming, um, I think we've all seen, the more programming, the better. You know, the, mo- the more that you can have activities, and that includes food and beverage, you know, um, the, the, the better used the public space is.
1: And, Karen, with uh, your plans, it's mm-hmm. all uh, effectively uh, public, open space?
3: Essentially. So uh, DRWC is a nonprofit, completely private nonprofit, but we were created by the city. So we control um, Penn's Landing um, through a 99 plus 99-year 99 lease from the city. Um, but effectively, it's us. We do operate it as a as though it was a public park. Um and when we were – so we do – We it, it's trying to find the revenue to support um, – we have a lot of free programming um, and trying to, you know, make sure that we can keep offering more and more um, programming. And we – as we take on more and more public space, we're being strained more and more. Our staff hasn't necessarily grown, but our the, – the number of acreage of public space that we now operate and maintain has grown. Um, and right now our um, – our operations are funded through the parking lots that we operate, which are those development sites that will hopefully not be parking lots um, soon with the, with, this, with this park going in. Um, and then um, finding these new ways, we opened something that I know some of you might be familiar with called Spruce Street Harbor Park, which was meant to be a, sort of a temporary seasonal um, park that we just sort of stopped, wanted to see what would happen. Um, and apparently, there is not enough beer and hammocks for the city of Philadelphia <laughs> because um, that has been become a huge part of our revenue. So now we're trying to find these new places for people to sit and eat and drink. And skate. Uh, and skate. These guys are going to get an skate. ice rink. Um, yeah, skating is is, a, is one of the known uses for the cap. Um, it's not fully designed, but we know there will be an ice skating rink there. Um but yeah, and so for the for this and for the cap, and as we were pitching it, we always assumed and made the case for that DRWC would continue to be the ones doing the operations and maintenance. The city wasn't going to be able to take on another 12 acres. The city already has more park space than it can, um, pretend, you know, right now completely maintain. So we wanted to just, we'll be doing it, and we'll figure out the revenue sources for that. And that'll be subleases for development and food and beverage and whatever creative ideas we think of next.
2: Can I make one further point about cost, but just going back to initial capital cost, just because it's a point of confusion sometimes, where even if we decide we want a whole bunch of this to be public open space. Let's say we find out we can't do buildings because the state just won't let us, or that we can do them in some areas, but it's harder to do them in other areas, and we end up with a big portion of this being public land. We do have an incredible shortage of open space. We would be buying that land somewhere. You know, it's the same thing with affordable housing. Like, we're out of land, and those affordable housing developers would be buying that land somewhere. The costs that are coming in from around the country, um, you know, we've been gathering data for several years now. Um the construction costs to create that land before you put anything on it are on par with if not lower what our land now costs in the heart of downtown. So I just want people to understand that that's when that's sort of when it went from crazy to not crazy, you know to 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 seriously think about this because we got to find the land somewhere. If it turns out we can build it right here in the heart of downtown for less than we'd have to go build it in some less or buy it in some less than optimal location, then it starts to. Makes sense. Well, what
1: are the costs that you looked at? I mean, on a square foot basis, and how does that compare? Well, I
2: was just about to ask Karen what, if you oh. know what yours is on a square foot basis. We're seeing anywhere from 500 to 800 depending on how thick the structurally mm-hmm. robust... I, I did it? the yeah. math. Okay, per yeah, because I don't think I've done <laughs> that math. So. Just because
1: when you, you told me it was uh, 225000 it was 12 acres. So <laughs> if, if my math was right, um, I figured it was about uh, $360 uh, a square foot.
2: And, so it, yeah. seemed,
1: it seemed low in comparison to... And
2: that is that include also your landscaping improvements, Yeah, so or is that, that includes just the structure?
3: No, that includes everything, and what it also includes um, is we have two sort of spin-off improvements that are part of this. We're building two uh, two miles of our waterfront trail that we consider part of our Penn's Landing CAP project, and then the extension of a pedestrian bridge on the southern end of the site at South Street. Um, so that's all included in the 225. So the cost... That would actually be a little bit less than that, mm-hmm. um, but we've never actually talked about it as a square footage price. So yeah, yeah.
2: that's our, how we're trying to boil it down to apples to apples yep. as we look at these examples from around the country. Makes sense, Scott. You may know the answer to this. I think Capital Crossing—they gave us their number last week. Like we said, take the buildings off. What did it just cost? Do you think it cost you to build the deck? They said seven, 700? So seven hundred, seven, seven hundred to eight hundred. Hmm. So that just gives you a feel for. It depends a lot on topographical conditions and,
0: uh, yeah. Millennium Park was $500 million total cost for a 25-acre. I don't know what that comes up, two square foot. But that, was, that included all of the art pieces, all of the park, uh, and some upgrade to a theater. Um, and that was 2001, 2004, so, but you know the economic value of that is today. Uh, I think what is it, twenty million a year visit Millennium Park now. It was five million that was projected when it was first finished.
1: Yeah, like that's a yeah. point we, we haven't even talked about. What are some of the ancillary benefits? I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen any of that, uh, or actually, Sam, probably your experience with Millennium Park has given an idea of what are some of the the benefits that um, indirect um, that maybe. Spun off as a consequence of uh, having this, uh, this space.
0: I don't know what the current one is. I know it has significantly surpassed its initial know, sound economic estimate of, I think it was about $1.4 billion in real estate activity directly associated to the park, and about $1.6 billion directly associated to the park for uh, commercial activities in 10 years. And within, I think, seven or eight years, this is between 20, uh, 2008, 10, maybe 10, it surpassed that significantly. And then in recently, what I know is the visitor um, uh, count has gone significantly, 20 million people visit that park a year. Wow. Uh, but when you go there, I think the bigger, actually, value is you have a significant amount of people and kids, especially families, living now in the downtown area. And in the summer, when you're there around 9, 10 o'clock, uh, what you see is four, five, six-year-olds screaming and shouting because
1: parents <laughs> are trying pool. to
0: drag them. No, to, yeah, because it's time to go home and they don't want to leave. <laughs> you know, you can't put monetary value you know, on that and making the downtown a you know, livable place.
3: something that we, in in our experience, while we were doing uh, the feasibility study, um, you know, everyone was on board with, connecting the city to the waterfront, we want to make this, everyone wants to go to the waterfront, let's build places for them to go. But then when you get into actually building projects, and it's like, well, is anyone really going to go there? Um, Because, you know, Philadelphia is just notoriously negative about everything. Um, (laughs) Just is. I think they'll, Philadelphians will proudly say that. Um, You know, and... um, you know, we were we were doing this, and we were actually you know wanted to make a case for why the public agencies and the the philanthropy um, philanthropic organizations should be investing in this. Um, simultaneously to our feasibility study, um, it was sort of fortuitous that we did the space at Spruce Street Harbor Park that I mentioned, and then our ice skating rink. Um, the ice skating rink had been there for 20 years. It was literally a rink in a parking lot with a bench next to it. Um, been there for 20 years, beloved institution, but didn't. There was nothing else around it. Um, and Spruce Street Harbor Park was in an existing green space um, built for the Bicentennial that very few people in Philadelphia even knew was there. So we announced um, during the feasibility study that we'd gotten funding um, to do this Spruce Street Harbor Park um, in this green space. The city was just like, what green space are you talking about? We've never heard of this. And we're like, it's been there for 30 years. Um and we thought, you know, everyone said, no one's going to cross I-95 and Columbus Boulevard, which is, we have 20 lanes, I think we counted up this morning, <laughs> separating the city from the river. Um, and lots of people, again, it's that we love the waterfront, we want to go there. And then when we proposed something, people said, well, no, no one's going to go there, don't bother. So we did Spruce Street Harbor Park and the Winter Fest, these happened together. Um, Spruce Street Harbor Park was supposed to be open for two months. We expected 50,000 people. We got 500,000 people in that two months. We were ordered by the mayor to keep it open. Another month, we literally had to call. We have these barges where we serve beer. And we had to call the guy and said, you can't have your barges back. Um, We're buying them from you. Sorry. (laughs) I'm not joking. This was over Labor Day weekend. And he had a job for them. And we said, you can't have them back. Um, Here's a check. Um, True story. Um, So we demonstrated that even just that little bit of investment got Above and beyond, you know the city leaders, the mayor started um, his previous mayor he started hanging out there. It was just his new his new place that he loved to go to, um, and that really started to make the case that there was this pent up demand um, that was really there to be by the water and and the the, the park this the, the new twelve acres was going to be justified and it was just great timing that that it happened at the same time, and then people realized oh okay there 's There's a crowd there. Um, And it also helped us, um, hopefully, to start inform the programming. We could use these um, more temporary parks um, as testing grounds for what type of spaces we might include in the permanent park.
1: We've got time for uh, just a few uh, questions from the audience. Yes, in the back.
0: Will the we study, study look at uh, mass chamber as a way to lower the way of the weight structure? Mm-hmm. Or is that to be sold a bit It's premature. I think whatever the consultant, selected consultant. So one of the, uh, and the way we wrote the RFP also allows sort of creative ways of the consultant informing uh, what, how they would do the study and what they would bring. So as far as I'm concerned, anything is open if it, is, it has a sound. Option I know that's being looked at at different places. Uh, whatever cuts, cuts costs and is feasible, sure. And, and it's important to know. I mean, it's from Olive to uh, Madison, so they're very different conditions in each one of them. So I think people shouldn't leave thinking like, oh, every single part of it is going to have buildings in park and buildings in park. I think some of it may have sort of very sort of minimal amount of uh, intervention and and you know. Lightweight structure and it's just a park, so that's why I kept see, saying that we need to look at all the ranges that are possible and realistic, and let's have the information.
1: Another question? Yes, please. Yeah, um, so, when they're tasked with uh,
0: studying this RP, are they kind of required to uh, follow the existing I five traffic patterns, like using those kind of medians and dividers? Or is
2: the thought that you know, if you redo or reprogram how I-5 goes through, that you can make the cost of the structure, you know, a lot
0: cheaper? Well, I'm not sure they're going to look at options that WashDOT would not agree with, Uh, but that would be, that's why we have WashDOT at the table, especially on the technical part of it and any leeway that they have in terms of the operation of the, uh, uh, how the operation of the freeway then informs the structural options Uh, is going to be critical, but uh, at this point... Potentially, if Washdot is uh, part of it, but I think, my hope is this conversation also sort of brings up things that we haven't thought about or Washdot hasn't thought about. I think that's why it's really important to uh, be really open to, I I think, some of the stuff that uh, Peter Kaltor was talking about at noon, which is our transportation mobility is changing really, really fast. Mm-hmm. So uh, the mistakes that were made in the '50s, we're paying heavily on that today. So you have to bring the question: you know, what kind of a place do we want Seattle to be 20 years from now, including the state highway? So mm-hmm. if that brings that conversation without uh, making Wash and Wash that has to be part of it. They own the land, so. Uh, But we want to be able to have that conversation in a sound and real um, informative way.
2: I will just add to that that um, this is another timing thing that is good, but they they have their own working group that has started to convene this year to look at all of these issues, including are they using that right-of-way in the most efficient way in a futuristic scenario. So again, it's the right time for us to be... Including, WashDOT has a lid I-5 corridor partnership group that, as of last March, started meeting every every uh, month. They're looking at Marysville to Tumwater because they they have they have uh, rebuild issues up and down the corridor, but the main part of Seattle is a major focus within that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorry to jump in.
1: No. Uh, my follow-up question to yours was. I really like the idea of that. It's great. But it seems like that, that I-5 at Seattle is the worst bottleneck on I-5 until you get to LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and it seems like putting the lid on it just makes solutions to that bottleneck more complicated. So you almost have to do it both. It's a good point. I mean, Sam, as part of the feasibility study, are you looking at um, what the, the through traffic is going to be? Sometimes we know with uh, tunnel structures, it slows the traffic down. And then I could pose the same question to you, Karen, what you experienced. But.
0: Well, so the underlying assumption is uh, whatever you do doesn't make the underlying condition worse. I mean, at the minimum, you have to stay within the same. If you could improve it, that's even better. Because, again, it's fundamental that WashDOT is on board. So those those kinds of issues are, are important. If there are solutions as part of this process that sort of uh, sparks an idea and they're up for it, yeah. But it has to be at least you know the same or better, uh, you know, without get doing snowy. anything. I'm sorry.
1: Won't get snowy. <laughs> that's exactly. <Good> it's better. <laughs>
0: Significantly. That's a good. What
1: point. was your experience, Karen? And in, in in part two, if I can pull from the last two mm-hmm. questions. Um, did you look at uh, reconfiguring I-95?
3: Yeah, so for us, this was... um, PennDOT is looking... They're rebuilding I-95 throughout the entire... all 30-something miles through Pennsylvania, and they're basically doing it um, in chronological order. Um, So this was the very last section to be built in the mid-'70s. So this was going to be the last section to be touched. And they weren't and still aren't planning to get to... To It until I think about 2040 um, Which is when they said Originally, sure, we'll build the cap in 2040 And we said, well, that, you know Now oh. um, <laughs> So they they are in planning for reconstruction of this segment of I-95, and they have wanted to be as flexible, as you were saying, be as flexible as possible, and that was actually interesting because every time the structure got thinner, it needed more spans, but the spans limited their ability for future planning of the best use of that space of I-95 um, because they don't expand, expect to expand or widen I-95. Um, So they're trying to be as flexible as possible. Um, Luckily, I think we've settled on a thickness and a structure that allows them as much as possible, um, while still getting us what we need in terms of a thin structure. Um, But we're also a little bit lucky in that this section of I-95, though I-95 is the major corridor along the, the East Coast, Um, The way it's built right now, when you're coming south or north, it's actually faster for you to get off I-95 and go into Jersey and then get back on I-95. So this is largely, not that it doesn't have congestion, but it isn't... um, it doesn't have the same amount of traffic as other parts of I-95. It's mostly local Philadelphia traffic that comes through here. Um, so it might be a little bit different, I think, than, than what it sounds like I-5 is, um, which isn't to say it's not congested. And you know, you know, Dots keeping their options open in terms of what is a highway in 2040 going to look like. Um, no one knows. And so they're trying to make it as flexible as possible. Um, but we did, we ran into the same questions.
1: For sure. Karen, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the last question, and I want to pose to you. you you've got uh, not quite in the rearview mirror, but uh, you're you're passing pa- uh, yeah. by uh, the project. Yeah. Um, what advice can you provide us here in Seattle?
3: Oh, so we thought a lot about this, and I I think I mentioned it this morning when we met. Um, this may feel like very specific advice. Um, I was talking with our president, and this was this was what he came with. Um, but we have talked about this um, this park as a park um, since the master plan. We've we've always called it a park, and it was. Um, And that actually hurt us a little bit in the early discussions about funding and who was building it because PennDOT and um, um, FHWA Federal Highway, who also was weighing in on this, um, said, Well, we don't build parks. (laughs) (laughs) So that's nice, um, but you're not, we can't build you a park out of this. Um, And so his advice was to just. You know, think in terms of the words that you're using, especially when it's still really early and you don't know quite how it's going to come together. Um, But keep in mind where funding might come from and how not to kind of. You know, back yourself into a corner, um, and we fixed it. And they said, "We build a bridge, um, so it's a bridge." Um, and uh, the, the park is—you know—they're kind of the park is a totally separate thing, basically. Um, but that, that, so a very specific piece of advice. That, um, but but that was something that, uh, like I said, he said really hurt us. And then I think otherwise. Um, if there are possibilities to kind of demonstrate on a smaller scale that this is going to have impact on the city the way that we did with some of our temporary public spaces and the activations that we did, um, to just demonstrate that, you know, in an incremental fashion that the small thing is going to have an impact and maybe the bigger thing is is really going to have the impact. So those are the two things I think I would leave you with.
1: Well, Please help me thank uh, Liz, uh, Karen, and Sam for their time and input. And I'll turn it over to Jacqueline with DSA.
3: Schwabi Williamson and Wyatt has been a great partner for us and made it possible for us to put this panel together as a, as a sponsoring partner. So please thank them. As well. <laughs>